the Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversation with everyday folks about the mystery of life. This podcast is a compliment to the Numinous School, my online intuition development program for people who want their self-awareness to serve a greater good. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, and today on the podcast, I'm speaking with Nina Hialenda. She's the founder of Dancing Spirit Tours, and Nina has married her Austrian Celtic pagan roots with her passion for Catholic mysticism. The conversation that we have is really so complete. I don't think it needs any more context than that. I think the pleasure we both take in talking about these subjects is self-evident and infectious. I spoke with Nina in person at my office in Victoria, BC. So Nina, what identities do you lead with? Well, that's an interesting question. I would say that I'm Austrian, even though I don't have an accent. I, I did grow up there, part-time in Austria, part-time in Canada. And in a lot of ways, my cultural values are still very Austrian. So that's a, that's a big one for me. I identify as Austrian. And uh, in terms of my job, my job title is Dream Activator. And that's because I love to inspire people. I aspire to inspire and help people get in touch with truth. And that is like what is real and authentic to them. And so, you know, it's easy to get lost in the identities of the world. And so in terms of my own identity, I like to think of myself as a person who is striving to be humble and authentic. You know, I mean, we move through our days and lose touch with that fact that we are just these small, temporary beings interdependent on one another. And I think as much as possible, I try to remember that and identify with that so that my ego doesn't grab a hold of me and start thinking of myself as, you know, all sorts of other things that are temporary. Mm. I try to look to the eternal as much as possible. Mm. Okay, so I'm very intrigued by Austrian... When, when you say my cultural values are Austrian, I have no idea what you mean by that. So I'm very curious about what, yeah, what does that look like? And, and if you grew up there, what, how did that influence your spirituality? What was your spiritual upbringing like? Yeah. Well, I grew up part-time in Austria, part-time in Canada. Austria, by contrast to Canadian values, is very much more family focused. We have uh, like larger extended families often living in the same household, very community based, very socialist country. Mm. And I was surrounded my whole childhood by women, wise women. Mm. So my mother had a great impact on me spiritually and my grandmothers as well. My uh, one grandmother on my dad's side practically uh, raised me in my spirituality. Mm. And all of my family, especially on my mother's side, are Celtic shamans. And so I grew up with that. And it was very hard to adjust when coming to Canada 
you know, during my youth, uh, between the ages of nine to 12, that time when especially young women are very psychically sensitive, very emotionally empathetic uh, to spirit, the unseen world really had a very tangible quality to it, much more so than the physical one. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think is very common for children. You know, they, mm-hmm. they make believe all the time and it's, uh, it can be often written off as just pretend, you know, get back down to the rational world. You got to grow up now. Um, and I was lucky in that way because my mom and my grandmothers really, uh, encouraged me not to shut that out, that that's actually where the real truth of who I am resides. Mm. And so I was very in touch with that. And, um, and that sort of defines the, the spiritual values of Austrian culture, I would say. And, you know, Austria is really the cradle of Celtic civilization. Even before they went over to the UK, we think about Celts, we think about Mm. England and Scotland and Ireland. And in many ways, the much older version of that tradition comes from the area and the land where I'm from. So this is the indigenous spirituality there, even though uh, today a lot of um, Christianity is there overlapping these shamanic values as well. But intrinsic in the cultural fabric is this sense of um, community and of spirit and everything being alive with spirit. So kind of like the the imminence where spirit can be found in land masses and yeah. in, um, different elements, whether it's like rocks and air and stuff like that, I would imagine. So I really appreciate the um, sort of the little history lesson because it's true that I think um, like I identify as a fifth generation settler in Canada of Scottish descent. And Mm. so, of course, when I'm learning about the pagan Celts, I'm thinking much more about the Scots and the Gales and all that sort of thing. So so it's very interesting. Can you trace back? Like, did so did the Celts move with, like, after the Romans or something like that, or prior? Like, how did it it go? Mm -hmm. How did it migrate there? Well, Celtic is an interesting term for... Indo-European cultures is a more sort of academically uh, appropriate term. A lot of scholars today talk about the Celts as, you know, the the very, it's almost like a non-tradition because it's referred to as a It's a linguistic tradition, really. Mm. So this is how they know where Celts and Indo-Europeans came from. Originally, of course, from the India, Indian Mm. area, and then migrating over through the Middle East and into Europe. Mm -hmm. And so they can tell because there's a spread of different uh, linguistic roots and and what you mentioned about the Roman Empire in terms of when when were they how did they get over there to the islands being on the islands they are sheltered so a lot of those indigenous spiritual practices were maintained there but those things were actually widespread all throughout Europe once upon a time okay yeah okay so that's super interesting because when we think of shamanism as a Canadian, I think of um, First Nations and Indigenous, like North American, um, Native Americans. So, what you're talking about, though, is an earth-based spirituality and kind of um, the sense of being interwoven 
mm-hmm. not just with the community, but also with the earth. So is that, is that, am I, have I got you there? That shamanism in that, in this context, we're talking about, this isn't medicine wheel stuff. This is like, it's earth-based. It's the, it's the spiritual practice of the actual land where they're from. Exactly. Yes. And there's a lot of similarities between uh, the indigenous populations and spiritual traditions of North America and of Europe Mm -hmm. and all throughout the world. Actually, the parallels are absolutely fascinating in terms of, you know, the the Celts have their own kind of medicine wheel. And a lot of what we know about the Celtic traditions is uh, reconstructions of what has been written about them by the Romans. And so, of course, there is you can you know, you'd be very interested in this kind of stuff because there's that flavor of assimilation even in the way that the Romans wrote about the Celts Mm -hmm. so now these days we know much more about Celtic history than we did you know a thousand years ago even because the with archaeology and with the modern sort of scientific approach to evaluating uh, our history as humans we can uncover the the real truths and so we're finding all sorts of things all the time Mm -hmm. And the shamanic traditions of the world are particular, I think, treasure troves of wisdom today. Because these indigenous people, whether it's in North America or Europe, they survived and they lived for thousands of years among ice ages and wild animals Mm -hmm. and this um, intense weather periods. Mm -hmm. And they had to discover community and education and healing in this harsh environment. Mm -hmm. And so there's this almost lost lore of Germanic, sort of pan-Germanic shamanism that's really rich with the with the spirit of the land like you were talking about and including angels there's angels in the shamanic traditions of Europe mm. and uh, and fairies and I don't mean like little tinkerbell I mean like you know nature spirits the spirits that animate trees and the divas mm. and um yeah, I grew up with those folk tales and formed a deep relationship to animals and animal spirits, like uh, similar to North American spirituality, sort of the indigenous spirituality of totems. Mm. That's very much the case in Celtic shamanism as well. Mm. And sort of visionary and lucid dreaming and shamanic journeying to drum beats. Mm. Yeah. So was that part of your practice growing up then it with was your grandma and your oh my god it was it was amazing I have yeah. this memory of my grandma and I being in the garden in the in the yard of our house and in that house uh, side note in that house it's been like four generations oh, of right. my family living oh. in that house living on that land mm-hmm. all on you know passed through the mother side of the the mm-hmm. lineage and so it's all through the female side which is absolutely wow. I think totally amazing is this yeah. common in Austria that there's a matrilineal tradition. Yeah, there wow. is. There is. And it kind of goes both ways. It's interesting because Catholicism is rooted deeply there, but so is that earlier shamanism. Mm. And so there's this beautiful harmony and balance of the divine father and the divine mother. Mm. And that's, and that's I think, very healthy. Mm-hmm. And I have this memory of being in the garden with my grandmother, drumming, sitting in the really, really tall flowers and grasses. And of course, I was much smaller, so yeah. maybe it just <laughs> appeared to be way yeah. taller than it 
it really was. But you know, we would be drumming, and she would teach me how to see fairies, how to see the life essence in every flower, in every blade of grass, in every stone. And we'd have this little hedgehog. There's all sorts of wild hedgehogs in okay. Austria, which is really interesting. It's cool. like raccoons here, you know, but <laughs> yeah. hedgehogs. And they're not quite as vicious, of course. Right. They're, they're very sweet. And I had this lovely hedgehog friend come over to play with me. And that's, that's one of my spirit animals, the oh. hedgehog, you know, the soft belly against Mother Earth at all times, you know, mm. and this practice of, of, uh, of boundaries with the hedgehog as the hedgehog has these spikes, right? And yeah. like, it can be used aggressively or it can, you know, learn how to uh, differentiate between mm. the self and the world and how to use personal power responsibly. Wow. And so uh, all of this is the kind of stuff that was uh, very deeply ingrained in me when I was a child. Okay, so you brought up Catholicism as also being quite... Um, I don't, I don't want to say rooted. That doesn't feel quite right, but um, uh, well-established in Austria. And you, as far as I can tell from what I know of you, identify quite strongly as Catholic. So I wonder, well, first of all, I'm curious, like, what would your grandmother say? Yeah, I know, um, right? <laughs> how did that happen? Yeah, it's, um, that's a really interesting story because often I think it is the other way around. I hear a lot of people growing up with Christian lineage and then opening up to a kind of more earth-based spirituality. But for me, it was a bit of the opposite. In my, in my culture in Austria, there's this notion of the initiation. And uh, I know that's a common sort of um, principle here too. And it's this kind of unraveling of everything that we identify with, everything that isn't the real core of who we are. And typically that's a journey that involves some kind of trauma. You know, usually there's a feeling of being destitute or utterly alone. And Christians call this the dark night of the soul. And it is through this initiation that the initiate begins on their true path of spirituality. And this is actually what happened for me in terms of my how I see my, I guess, purpose of being alive and how uh, Dancing Spirit Tours, the, the company that I formed that takes people to sacred sites around the world, how that was born as a vehicle for this mission. So my initiation was um, five years ago. It was a sudden diagnosis of cancer. And, you know, when you don't have your health, your life is seemingly about to cease. Everything non-essential falls away. My very important to-do list, you know, my job, I was working in theater at the time as a producer, very busy, very much identifying with that, everything. It was... A really beautiful thing that happened when I realized that I had been defining myself by all these things that are temporary. My goals and my personality, my friends, my family even. And the one that really hit home was when I realized that I had been identifying with my past. And in that pivotal time, I realized just how much my idea of myself was holding me back from being really in that in the moment. So when you say you were identified with the past, you mean like you were kind of um, 
who you had been, you were just projecting into the future, just sort of brighter and shinier? Or was there something about the past that you were clinging to? What do you mean? Yeah, there were things in the past I was clinging to. And it's, it was all subconscious and it was Mm -hmm. all suddenly revealed to me Uh. during this crisis. It's like, Oh, wow. I have all these people I need to forgive. And I have all these people that I need to ask for forgiveness from. You know, like little things happen all the time that it seems like, ah, no big deal. Lost touch with that friend, whatever. That's all incomplete stuff. Those are all loose ends. That's how... I exist in the memories of all of those people. Mm. I've left all these imprints on people. And, you know, what have I done with my life, basically? Mm. I am the impact I've had on the world. That's my past. And so my entire journey with cancer became this sacred ceremony of letting go of the past. Mm. And at that point, I didn't know, you know, if I would die or not. I couldn't really afford in my mind to think that I would survive because if I thought there was a chance I would make it through this, then I wouldn't have been so passionate about tidying up all my Mm. unfinished business. Mm -hmm. And as a 25 year old at the time, that was huge. Mm -hmm. I felt like I have so much living to do and I better make the most of it. So I watched my life, you know, just crumble before my eyes as I basically prepared for my death. Mm. It was very hard. It was very hard to see the terror in my parents' eyes. Mm. You know, I worked with my incredible spiritual director and we embarked on a mission of this great letting go. And uh, I wrote so many letters of Mm. people I had to forgive, people that I hurt, and I forgave myself. And that was the biggest thing. I formed an entirely new relationship with my body mm-hmm. and with myself as a woman, mm-hmm. you know, growing up in, uh, in Austria, which is, which is uh, very much about expectations you have to meet in our culture too, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, that's really hard. And I let all of that go. Did you need to forgive your, for your body for getting cancer or something else? Oh, that's so interesting that you say that. Huh, I've never even thought of that. Oh, okay, sorry. Yeah, no, it's great. No, I love that. Forgive my body for getting cancer. You know, I was pretty angry with myself. I was angry because I do think that illness is a manifestation of the things that are out of balance psychically, spiritually, emotionally. Mm. And I think that I attributed my cancer to um, the things that, the unfinished business that I had, that I'd been carrying around. Because cancer is an overproduction, right, of, of cells that just keep copying themselves that are not useful, that end up being invasive. And that's really how my life was running. My life was a cancer. Mm. I was being so overly productive. I call myself a recovering A-type personality <laughs> because it's, it's, you know, I needed that part of me to die. Mm. And there's this beautiful quote by my favorite saint, St. Francis of Assisi. He says that it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Mm. And he doesn't mean physical death here. He means the death of the ego. You know, mm-hmm. it's about realizing that all things fall away. Mm-hmm. And this is what poverty means, the poverty of being human. There's so many of these great mystics and teachers and healers that live in poverty, physical, material poverty, and spiritual poverty as well. 
Can I just interject for a second? Because you're also reminding me of Rumi, who I, I won't quote him properly, but he has in one of his poems, like, we need to die before we die so that we may live. Oh, right? that's and beautiful. So he's talking about the same, and, and I often use that when I'm talking about, like, why would we do um, some of the kind of, let's say, more... Um, dark or shadowy shamanic journeys you know mm. why would we willingly undertake to um walk the via negativa right Where yes we just and let everything God go, right? Words, yeah. yeah right why nice. would we do this this thing and partly i i it's because i i agree with what they're saying there that we need to be able to face that aspect of ourself that needs to die and help it to die so that we may I don't know if it's appreciation, but so that we, we may um, be enriched somehow in the privilege of living. Yes. There's something about that. So as, okay, so you have this initiation, you find Catholicism, and is that when you say you had a spiritual director, was that, were they Catholic? No, they weren't actually. They were trained in the uh, Western occult traditions. Oh. So, and, and in shamanism. So that's right. really, you know, it is actually in my, uh, while I was uh, sick with cancer, I had to have radiation treatment. And so it was in my leg. It was uh, a sarcoma, so connective tissue cancer. And it required that a lot of my um, uh, connective tissue and fatty tissue would melt off with the radiation, which is, you know, horribly painful. And, um, yeah, well, it's just, just horrific. It's horrifying. just, yeah. it's just terrible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so I was in bed a lot of the time. And this is when I started to read about the life of the saints. Mm. And I read about, you know, St. Francis, especially, he really inspired me. And John of the cross, you know, the inventor of the dark night of the soul yeah. and Teresa of Avila and St. Ignatius of Loyola, all these incredible, incredible beings. And it's so funny because normally, you know, people think of um, Catholicism and, and Christianity as, as this very harsh, inflexible kind of uh, approach. At least that's how I thought of it. And that's the stereotype. But once you look into uh, the lives of these people who are deeply honored within the tradition, you realize just how much they are connected to that eternal cyclical life and death and discovering what is uh, truly deeply meaningful and harnessing that energy in their human lives, like mm -hmm. on the ground, being these advocates for change and these mm -hmm. activists of love in mm -hmm. the world. And yeah, that's what really Teresa inspired me. Avila, that who, I mean, she sent so many letters. She walked so far. I mean, she was she was really a lobbyist, yes. you know, in many ways, right? And, Absolutely. And of course, Francis is so well known for being quite earth-based, right? Mm -hmm. so, okay, so there, there is this, there definitely, certainly, um, uh, a very beautiful aspect of Catholic mysticism yes. that you've connected with. I have to imagine, though, that, <laughs> you know, you're leading pilgrimage, um, trips to different sacred sites through dancing spirit tours you are openly talking about celtic shamanism and earth-based practice and and side by side with um, catholic mysticism i have to imagine that you get some pushback from more conservative catholics and christians who are like this is the devil's work you know and it, does, yeah. it probably doesn't matter that John of the Cross and certainly Teresa and, and many others were experiencing altered states of consciousness and mm. miracles like stigmata and things like that. You know, 
people don't really like to hear that if they think that that's kind of the devil's work, right? So how do you, how do you navigate that? This kind of, maybe it's political or maybe it's ideological, but how do you marry the Celtic shamanism with the Catholic mysticism? Mm-hmm. Interesting question. You know, it's, I love that part of my job. It's my favorite because I'm a bit of a, you know, I'm a shit disturber. <laughs> I like to challenge people. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, one of the reasons I love the Catholic tradition is because it needs so much healing from the inside mm-hmm. out. And, you know, I think you might be surprised the amount of people that are very open to listening about, um, about shamanism and about earth-based spirituality and about the goddess, because of course in Catholicism, we have the Marian tradition, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the maiden mother crone mm-hmm. of uh, European indigenous shamanism grew into this beautiful uh, ceremony of the goddess throughout the Middle Ages. And that's still strongly rooted. The type of Christianity that's rooted in uh, Europe, mainly Catholicism, does actually incorporate a lot of these earlier spiritual traditions just intrinsically. So it's not as hard to hear about them as you might think. Mm. You know, I think there, there's a difference when I'm speaking to Protestant groups, to, mm. a total pushback, total, total pushback. But in, in the Catholic uh, communities, not so much. Mm. It's it's interesting. Sometimes, though, there there is, you know, my... Uh, I'm challenged. I was I was speaking to the Archbishop of Chartres Cathedral, one of the great medieval uh, cathedrals of you know of Europe, probably one of the greatest architectural feats ever. Mm-hmm. I think it is absolutely magnificent. I get chills just thinking about it. I can yeah. remember being cold in there, maybe, oh, but it's just yes, it's, absolutely yes. It's this magical. beautiful, magical masterpiece of stone, and as much as it's made of of stone, it, it feels like it's light. Yeah. Like it feels like clouds. It's made of air. Yeah. It's, it's made of air. It's made of light. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. And so the Catholic uh, church is very protective over this cathedral in a way, especially in recent years, because a lot of, um, uh, new age communities have, are coming there and practicing rituals there. And they've been, uh, inviting of those different spiritual traditions and as of late there's been more of a closure Mm -hmm. uh, to that because I think there's a fear uh, you know protecting of tradition and so I was trying to gain a private access to Chartres Cathedral which we have on on our Divine Mm -hmm. Feminine France tour which is absolutely magnificent uh, trip and as I was speaking to the Archbishop you know he was no 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 and I just thought okay well I have to I have to change my approach here. So I totally just dropped into my heart Mm -hmm. and I spoke from the real place, the real truth of what's real for me. And I have to appeal to people's hearts that way. And I find whenever I do that, regardless of how conservative somebody is, Mm -hmm. they open up. It's amazing. The heart is a portal to union Mm -hmm. with our fellow humans, no matter how diverse our traditions may be, how diverse our political agendas and and feelings. It's like, um, that is really where we realize that we are more the same than different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can I steer us to a bit more talk because Chart, of course, so I was there, I guess, two, maybe three years ago and just ended up intuitively following, um, sort of, I don't know what you'd call it, like a sacred path or the journey that Mary Mm. Magdalene 
may have taken. So, you know, and also some of the um, Qatars and the mm-hmm. Cathars, as some mm-hmm. people would call them, um, had mostly grown to different holy sites like this. And I was reading Cynthia Bourgeau's book, The Meaning of Mary Magdalene yes. at the time. And of course, this was really activating going to San Bohm. And I know you go to these places as well. And of course, Chart you know, it becomes a, a stop on um, sort of this, I think, a person's pilgrimage to follow the Marys, you know, yes. the, 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 the feminine or female face of Catholicism and Christianity. What, what are your thoughts on the roles or how do you perceive um, Mary, Mother of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene? What, I'm just curious about your own personal take. Mm-hmm. Where, yeah. they, where do they sit in your where pantheon? Where do they fit in? Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> well, Mary Magdalene, in many ways, I think is so popular these days because she has she has become a symbol, a uh, sort of an agent of uh, the transformation of the feminine. You know, she is. Uh, she deeply suffered. You know, she was throughout the the church history. She was not a prostitute. You no. know, that was a that was a a, right. a speech that Gregory yeah. the Ninth made about yeah. her. And throw that, that out. Yep, yeah, throw that out. <laughs> Nowhere does it say she was a prostitute. No. She was a, a disciple of of Jesus, a student. She may have been his wife. We don't know. But regardless of whether or not that's true, when we look at the archetype of Mary Magdalene and we see the devoted spiritual seeker. Mm-hmm. You know, we can identify with her as that seeker and we can identify with all the judgment that she's faced mm-hmm. over the years. And I think that's why people are reclaiming her mm-hmm. and trying to honor her because they're wanting to honor their own inner lives mm-hmm. as well. We want to bring ourselves back to uh, our own spiritual journey rather than this dogmatic approach where we have to adhere to doctrine. Mm-hmm. So that's what Mary Magdalene symbolizes is the spiritual seeker's journey. Mm-hmm. Mm. Interesting. Also, I would even go even further if I can and kind of build on what you said, reading the Gospel of Mary Magdalene and the Gospel of Thomas and realizing, of course, there's like very, um, you know, if we if we talk also about the Nag Hammadi scrolls, mm-hmm. and these, you know, scrolls that were found in the late 40s that fill in some gaps. Of course, there's pages missing, but basically here's her story, Mary Magdalene's story in her own words. And essentially, we, what we can lift from that is she was the apostle to the apostles. You yes. Know? She was the one who, it sounds to me like she was in trance for three days while, you know, mm-hmm. and, and Jesus was coming to her Definitely. after he died and she was sort of downloading his messages and then she took it to the other apostles. And so I always think of her as sort of the symbol of, now, you know, anybody who listens to the podcast at all knows that I tend to stay away from like gender stuff. I, I tend not to talk about the masculine and the feminine. Mm. That said, there's something about even female biology that would inform us and tell us that women are about performing the miracle of transformation. Yes. That, so we can bring forth other humans yes. from our bodies, not just female, but also male. Yeah. You know, we can bleed every month and not die. We can provide food from our body. Mm-hmm. So obviously there's something about that. And so it makes sense that we would have sort of, let's call it quote unquote, special knowledge. And so here's Mary Magdalene, who's now, she's a psychopomp. 
You know, she's a, she is a shaman. She's a shaman. This is what she's doing. Absolutely. And so she becomes sort of a conveyor of consciousness. She is the one who needs to now interpret for the other apostles. Here's what's happened. And to me, it seems like that's another kind of archetype that we still have yet to perhaps articulate. But this Mm -hmm. idea of women as conveyors of consciousness Mm -hmm. for others, as, Mm -hmm. as women as um, relators and almost like bards to the mystery. Yes. And which I think is what she was. Absolutely. I think, and so I think that that's what she says to me anyway. And yeah. I really, I She's really often known as the founder of Christianity, you know, mm-hmm. right, right along with Peter and Paul, hmm. these three figures, Peter, Paul, and Mary Magdalene. Oh my gosh. You know? It's only just coming to me now. Yeah. Because, because she, she okay. holds the, the whole feminine wisdom tradition and she was really the first person. I think, you know, there's good evidence to suggest she was one of the first people to really pursue and activate and inspire the apostles. They mm. were all exhausted. They were yeah. tired. They were sick scared fighting. after Jesus died and fighting. Yep. They thought, okay, well time to give up. He's yeah. dead. We're gone. You know, what are we going to do now? Yeah. And Judea <clears throat> became a very dangerous place to stay mm-hmm. after the crucifixion. Mm-hmm. And so Mary Magdalene initiated this journey with 72 apostles sailing across the Mediterranean, landing on the shores of France. And she really gave the speech to end all speeches about inspiring people to go two by two, follow Jesus's message and preach the word of love. You know, this wasn't about conversion. This was about, you know, there's this word anthropos, which means to become fully human. Mm. And this is something that she talks about in her gospels and that, that is mentioned in the gospel of Thomas and in various places in the Gnostic text as something that Jesus was really Uh, all about, which is this marriage of the masculine and feminine, and not necessarily in terms of this, these gender identities, but just these, this quality of the yin and the yang, Mm -hmm. the quality of receptivity and the quality of, uh, of a more active, Directive. directive kind of energy in the world. And that's what made Jesus such an effective change maker. Mm -hmm. He had this beautiful blend of this, this, uh, receptive, loving, compassionate, generous, forgiving, state, all these qualities that you might attribute to the feminine receptivity. And he also, you know, was <laughs> those tables. Yeah. He, I was just thinking that he flipped those tables and he, he laid down the law in terms of what is right here, what is just, you know, and, and when that justice is rooted in the heart of love, then you are unstoppable. And Mary Magdalene kept that tradition going, I think, mm. you know, she really, uh, fought for that after, after Jesus, um, you know, mm-hmm. passed away, resurrected, and, and ascended. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what then does your... I'm curious about the nuts and bolts of this then, of like a day in the life of Nina and her spiritual practice. You know, okay. Maybe not a day in the life, but I, I just mean... So with this beautiful combination, these two sort of woven paths that, that are so lovely and integrated in your life, like what kinds of observances are most meaningful to you? What kind of ritual and ceremony make up your spiritual practice? Mm. Yeah, great question. Well, it's funny. I really do feel sometimes like I live in two worlds or two versions of the same world. (laughs) I follow the the Celtic wheel of the year, Mm -hmm. 
with all the the eight sort of celebrational times, you know, Beltane and Yule and the equin the equinoxes and the solstices, basically. Mm-hmm. And I do different rituals around that, mostly on my own, or you know, there's there's groups around town that do these reconstructive ceremonies, and those are those are lovely to participate in, just as a form of celebrating the earth and really getting in touch with the natural cycles. Mm-hmm. But then I also follow. I go to church every Sunday, and I take the Eucharist, and I I sort of uh, try to reach back into these early Christian sort of Christ consciousness traditions and infuse my own experience in church today uh, with that knowledge of that history and that meaning. And so sometimes I feel like I'm in my own little world in church (laughs) next to people who are celebrating the same thing, but they might be celebrating in in a different way. Mm. Uh, So one of the most attractive things for me about Catholicism is the enthusiastic passion for service to humanity Mm. and this kind of no-nonsense approach to morality. And so, you know, while my um, my values are a lot more liberal than the mainstream Catholics, I would say that the kind of no-nonsense approach and this, this aspiration to service, it really is useful and practical today mm-hmm. because we live in this very egocentric, self-entitled sort of me, me, me culture. And uh, I, I make my main spiritual practice all about keeping myself accountable and keeping that moral compass strong, which is a very Catholic thing to do. You know, (laughs) it can be something, you know, as, as small as like owning up to when I was, you know, snarky in a bad mood and kind of said something mean to somebody or like even just, eh, you know, I just want to be as real as possible Mm -hmm. and uh, make sure that my impact in the world is as loving and compassionate as possible. So I read the lives of the saints and I'm constantly aspiring to be more like them and be more like Jesus's example as well. Mm -hmm. Although it's hard to compare oneself to Jesus because of all the dogma that's been wrapped up around that. And so, so that's my main spiritual practice, you know, being a better person and serving others. It's really quite simple. It's all about compassion and service. How do you manage your, um, more liberal values? Like how do you handle the patriarchy? And the church. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. How does anyone handle the patriarchy? You know, I have my amazing close girlfriends who I I yell and scream and rage to, as I'm sure you do, too. Like, this happened and rawr. And, you know, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes I'm really at a loss. I think I surround myself with strong women, you know, who encourage me. Mm-hmm. And, and men as well, allies, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, in terms of the patriarchy, in terms of, you know, I try to take care of myself and, and just as much as possible identify with the eternal. Mm-hmm. And that keeps me going in the mm-hmm. face of the things that are totally unfair and the things about the church that I don't like. I don't yeah. like most things about <laughs> the Catholic church, yeah. but I'm committed to the path because I think it's a powerful thing to do for mm-hmm. me. I feel mm-hmm. drawn. I can't quite explain it, but, uh, I like what you said about how it's a place that needs so much healing. Oh yeah. So it's uh, what's that other quote that um, it's like some, some people see trouble and walk to the center of it. Yeah. That's me. <laughs> that's and you. that's you too. Right. <laughs> totally, yeah. Well, and we are the people who really, you know, we see that and we have the power to make that change. Everyone does, mm-hmm. but it's a lot more powerful not to avoid it. We mm-hmm. gotta, we gotta walk into that fire. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So then, I imagine, well, and I mean, you, you shared your beautiful story, um, your initiation story around cancer, but, uh, 
you've used the word rage. I'm curious about how you understand and cope with grief and rage. I mean, we all, you know, anybody listening to this podcast knows all about the, you know, knows about turning to God and turning it over and let go and all that mm-hmm. stuff. But like in the real dark hours, how do you, what's your relationship like with grief and rage? Yeah, I, <clears throat> I love grief. <laughs> I know that sounds crazy. Well, probably not to you. (laughs) But it is truly the most powerful agent of change. Mm -hmm. It is in the sorrow that we break open and we allow the love to flow in. Mm. Grief, for me, is a portal to reconnect with the fire of yearning Mm. for union. With union with oneself, you know, like personal healing, union with others, building bridges instead of walls, you know, where there's misunderstandings and hatred, uh, racism, all sorts of crazy things. Mm -hmm. So peace really among humanity. And then union with God, not just for, for me, but like for everyone, like a total reconciliation of the human being with our world around us, with the earth, Mm -hmm. with, uh, identifying as souls on this journey of the mystery Mm. so grief draws me into that and there's so much needless anguish in the world so much separation and suffering I think people forget I mean it's so funny that we forget we feel separate we're you know we feel alone when we're wrapped up in you know what what Christians call the world right Right. our distractions our Mm -hmm. our egos even for many religious or spiritual people, God becomes a theory in those times mm. of grief. Mm-hmm. And that's the most important time. That's the most uh, rich, most fertile time when we're in trouble, when we're really under stress, that we can open sort of intimately connecting with this experience of feeling separate and feeling alone and that actually sort of somehow activates uh, a feeling of um, unity mm. it's really yeah it's hard I mean it's hard to it's like there's an aura of um, enlightenment you know flowing around people who are grieving have you ever experienced that someone who's who's just lost someone who love they love or there's it's there's this wisdom this love this deep quiet that seems to emanate from them and I think that's the consequence of being broken open mm. you know it's a space where holiness can enter in into that space of grief and it and we become that container for grace and that's our job it's to become these clear channels these open channels so that grace and love can flow through us to those around us who forget and how do you suffering. understand grace how do you define that grace grace for me is like it's like the it's like the, the, the love fabric that permeates everything. Mm. I think everything, you know, this, this cup right here, you know, this is made of love. And that's not something I can describe in a, in a physical way. It's an experience, the experience of being alive. Mm. Grace, it's like a, we live in a world full of grace. It's right in front of us all the time. Mm. 
it's this energy of um, of spirit that makes up everything that is matter you know everything from spirit to matter like all the way down the chain of manifestation Mm -hmm. and we tune into that that's the ultimate reality that never changes no matter how many you know how much things fall apart around us Mm -hmm. and so when we tune into that we can experience this uh nirvana you know nirvana is that the word that is um when we're not fearing anything and we're also not desiring anything we're just in the moment Mm -hmm. that's the experience of grace Mm -hmm. and so then what do you rage about? What enrages you? How do you deal with that? <laughs> I think everything enrages me. <laughs> everything. You know, I, I'm angry about... Um, angry isn't really a word, actually, that I should use. Rage is something different. It's much more powerful. Rage is like anger applied. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right? I am... Anger unleashed is the way I think of it. Yes, <laughs> anger unleashed. I rage about all the unfairness of the world, of being alive, all the contradictions, like, you know, people going at each other, really, I think is the biggest thing. People getting in this, um, and myself included, when we, when we fall into those illusions of separateness and we try to, we act from that place of fear, Mm -hmm. we act out against each other. We forget the true nature of love that we are and that actually it's all fine. And we're all, it, it, we really are all part of the one and there are no obstacles that are insurmountable, but we create these crazy stories Mm -hmm. that that's, what's true, Mm -hmm. that we, we're separate and we're, and we're different. And, um, you know, and I'm not trying to say that to sort of, uh, you know, obviously there are real challenges. I'm very in, in tune with uh, and learning about my own privilege and how, you know, it's very easy for me as, for example, a white person to speak of that, of the, you know, we're all one. Well, guess what? That's not the experience of, you know, someone who's listening to me who, who isn't, uh, you know, ha- who's having a really difficult time facing all sorts of things that I couldn't possibly imagine, mm-hmm. you know, and we're all... We all have pieces like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what really enrages me, is that we can't have compassion for others because mm-hmm. we're so stuck in our own stories. Mm-hmm. What are we doing? Mm-hmm. You know, what are we doing if we can't extend our hearts towards each other? There's the, what else is worth living for? Mm-hmm. That enrages me. <laughs> As you can tell, I'm yeah. practically banging the table. <laughs> No, that was really good. Well, I I actually feel very um, activated and enlivened by your rage. So Fantastic. I feel like that's a great place to end. I feel like yeah, that's that that's definitive, and I can really feel it. I can feel the love coming through your rage. So awesome. Yeah. Well, that's real rage, isn't it? When yeah. it's when it's actually rooted in a. a it's sort of a radical loving, mm-hmm. radical desire to love more deeply and to have other people love each other more deeply, just to create that peace mm-hmm. so we can experience this amazing journey of being alive. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for letting me experience just a little bit of journey with you, Nina. I really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much, Carmen. This was wonderful. Ah, wasn't that a nice conversation? It's fun to do one in person. Nina really is um, just a radiant being, as you can tell. So uh, check her out at dancingspirittours.com. 
Today, I'd like to give a shout out to my Celtic listeners living on the old sod in Ireland. I recently learned, actually, that uh, Gaelic refers to the Scottish language of my heritage, and Gaelic refers specifically to the Irish language. I didn't know that before, so now I can make that distinction. So, diagwit, uh, and and gerud mahagwit. Thank you for listening, everyone in Ireland. As I mentioned at the top of the show, this podcast is a compliment to the Numinous School, my online intuition development course. It will be uh, reopening for registration in June 2017. If you'd like to know about it, hop onto my website and sign up for my newsletter. While you're there, you can read all about my wilderness quests, 12 days in the mountains of ceremony and ritual to help you tap into your spiritual roots. Get all the details at carmenspaniola.com, C-A-R-M-E-N. S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care.